Welcome back to Do Less Podcast. Thanks for doing less with us. I'm your host, John Archibald, and I'm joined today by our unpaid intern, <laughs> Jeff Barsamian. <laughs> Please pay me. I can't feed my kids. <laughs> he, he provides a good service, but unfortunately, we don't have the budget over here at uh, Do Less Podcast for... Unfortunately, <laughs> our budget is zero dollars. <laughs> Which we've stayed under, which we've stayed well within our our budget to date. So that's true. We have um, had to sacrifice twenty five percent of our profits to host these podcasts. <laughs> but fortunately, twenty five percent times zero is still zero. <laughs> <laughs> but we love making them, so we come back every week, kind of, and make, them, <laughs> and make more. <laughs> we come um, back every once in a while when we feel like it. Every time we feel so moved to uh, record a podcast, here like we are. Like when something really exciting happens. And like I yesterday. have some juicy excitement in my life, in everyone's life. Uh, the latest episode of my favorite show, the <laughs> FOMC press conference. <laughs> the Federal Reserve held their, uh, um, I guess, it's not quite once a month it's like once every six weeks they have a press conference and i watched that made some popcorn and i uh watched jerome powell (laughs) address the uh the reporters give his speech and then answer questions did he look handsome i didn't watch it he looked stressed (laughs) he must be (laughs) Uh stressed um because i thought everything's great yeah the greatest economy of all time well so what I wanted to talk about today was specifically a comment he made. It was, I think, the last question he fielded from the reporters. Um, the other, the otherwise pretty uneventful um, FOMC press conference. Why don't we play the ch- hour for our listeners, and then we'll come yeah. back and do our commentary on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't worry. I'll link. I'll link the press conference in the description, and our listeners can feel free to go listen to the whole hour. Um, which I know they'll all do. Uh, but, uh, yes. It's a pretty uneventful speech, obviously. It sounds like he's giving a lecture in, about the most boring subject. He's just delivering monotone statements as if they're facts. But they're not facts. They're very wildly contested <laughs> by, I guess you could say... There's dozens three, of us. Yeah. <laughs> dozens of us. We listen to that and we don't think they're facts. We think they're actually, that he's actually wrong. But mm-hmm. uh, he didn't change rates, which is kind of the big part of the press conference. What happens when they announce their rate decision, if they're going to raise the inter- the Fed funds rate or lower it, um, mm-hmm. that'll happen in this conference, this press conference. So rates were unchanged. So that's kind of, but that was, that was expected. So yeah, I don't think anyone was surprised there. Yeah. And he's a bit, an actual surprise was that the repo the repo market intervention by the Fed is continuing through April when they previously said it would be finished by, um, I think, the calendar year, calendar year 2019. I mean, yeah. maybe January, but it wasn't supposed to go to April. He's he's pushed it like a whole quarter of right. additional operations, which he just kind of waves his hand and says, no, this isn't a big deal. It's just uh, the market's temporarily staffed for liquidity. And in that case, we're adding repo liquidity availability, and so he's yeah. And if you're not up to date on do less or the Fed, uh, what they're doing, 
is they're printing money, basically buying short-term assets from banks so that the banks have extra cash, right? The Fed prints the cash. They don't actually print it. It's just bits in a computer, but they create, they create the money and then they buy uh, the assets from banks when there's no other buyers who are willing to buy at that price. And that what that does is that drives the 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 net the market rate down, right? Because the market's like supply and demand, right? So the more supply of cash there are for these assets, uh, that the the lower the interest rate, right? Like the 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 bigger supply of uh, savings or money, the lower the interest rate. So the net effect of them printing this money is to drop the interest rate of the in the repo market, which previously they thought was too high because it spiked in September. Right. Yeah, it's basically just short-term lending with safe assets as collateral. Um, right. It's the same, in my opinion, as quantitative easing, um, which was the the emergency measure after the financial crisis. And I will go on a little bit of a tangent here um, to reference Neil Kashkari, who is the Minneapolis Fed bank president so the minneapolis fed bank is the regional bank of the federal reserve um which there is 12 of those uh in the country minneapolis being one of them so neil kashkari is the president of that bank which means and this year he has voting privilege on the fomc committee uh well yeah fomc is the federal open market committee Mm -hmm. so he's got a he's got a voting uh it there's rotational voting rights i don't know if they get into that but this guy so when when they vote on the rate cut he's one of the ones voting so he's got a very influential role in monetary policy for the u.s um and he recently tweeted he's very active on twitter and he recently tweeted a tweet that includes qe conspiracy theorists <laughs> is what he referred to people that think did we make do we make the list yeah i, I actually <laughs> no we didn't Oh um, man! But uh, he refers to people that think that this repo operation um, by the Fed this of late is that where people when people call that QE the same as QE he thinks that's a conspiracy theory, and he thinks that anyone who touts that belief is a QE conspiracy theorist. So I I mean we're over here with our tinfoil hats on I guess that we're, we're <laughs> conspiracy we're conspiracy theorists. For calling a, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, <laughs> you call it a duck. We're out here calling yeah. this a duck and getting, in response, told by our, one of the most powerful members of our society, unelected, mind you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're getting told that we're conspiracy theorists. So that was a... Yeah. That was well, a, QE is creating money and buying long-term assets. Yeah. Whereas what they're doing is creating money and buying short-term assets. So you see, John, it's actually totally different. Yeah, I'm such a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> so you got to take that hat off and, and wake wake <laughs> up because this is it's completely different we're talking about. I actually yeah. made a meme about this with uh, like that Patrick and Man Ray. Yeah, right. Where he's like, yeah, you dropped your wallet. And he's like, it's like the meme goes like, are you Jerome Powell? And he's like, yep. And he's like, and you're printing money to buy uh, securities. And he's like, yep. 
And he's like, and printing money to buy securities is defined as quantitative easing. He's like, yep, that makes sense to me. And he's like, so you're doing QE. And he's like, it's not QE. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Um, And I've actually posted that in the description of of a past episode, but I could repost it, I suppose. But uh, anyway, so back to the back to the point that I wanted to talk about about the, the the question that really got to me about this press conference with Jerome Powell, and the question that was asked was a fair question. With low interest rates for so long, you know, we're going on what I consider ten years of low interest rates ever since the financial crash of two thousand eight. The Fed has been holding interest rates lower than what presumably the market would demand, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So the question was, with artificially low interest rates for such a long period of time, does the Federal Reserve fear that savers in this economy are getting unnecessarily punished, more punished than they would have been in a... I forget the exact wording of the question, but just what what's, what is this in monetary like a, policy? I mean... I guess you could say in a free market because it's not really a free market. In a free market, yeah. Compared to a free market, how is monetary policy affecting savers in the economy? So that, to me, is a very fair question. It's probably one of the best questions that was asked to him because when interest rates are low, savers are artificially punished. Just the, the, the act of saving money uh, when the interest rates are lower just means that you're going to yield lower return on that those savings whereas uh, as opposed to if you were to say go into debt to make a purchase as opposed to saving up for the purchase that's the real distinction between savers and what otherwise the otherwise actors in the economy uh savers being the people that will save their money to make a purchase versus a person who would go out and make the purchase today on credit Right. And like you can think of the credit market as just like any other market. It's it's no different than the bread market, right? So everything, every market acts according to the laws of supply and demand, right? So if there's a ton of bread out there and there's not that much demand for it, then bread is cheap. But if demand for bread suddenly skyrockets, without an increase in the supply bread, then the price will go up, right? And this is just how resource, this is how resources get, this is how we determine how scarce resources are, right? This is how we figure that out naturally. No one has to plan that, right? So it's like with collectibles, right? When they when they first were making Pokemon cards, they're everywhere, right? But they stopped making certain ones of them and the people that hung on to them you know, the supply of those is falling, right? Because people are going to lose them. They get broken, burnt, whatever. And then like the few people that were able to hang on to their shiny Charizard card now suddenly have one of three of them, right? So there's such a small supply. And then maybe even the demand goes up because of the nostalgia. It's like, we, we all familiar with this. The price goes up, right? This is like, no one had to like decree that the price of that card would go up. It's just, it's only natural. It's, it, this is innate in our, in our nature, right? And so this is the same thing with savings. Interest is basically the price of savings. If I save up money 
and someone says, hey, can I borrow that? I'm going to charge them, right? Because I worked hard for that money and I'm not going to just let them have my money not knowing if I'll get it back. So I'm going to charge them and I'm going to charge them based on how much I think I can trust them and also based on how many other people have savings, right? So if everyone has a lot of savings, I can't dem- I can't demand a high price for my savings because, you know, someone else will charge lower. And then I'm like, ah, shoot, I got to I got to go lower if I want to sell my savings to this guy. Right. And so interest rates are just the equilibrium price of savings. And if the Fed forces that price down, you're going to have fewer people who want to offer their savings at that price. It's no different than any other market. It's like a price ceiling in any other market. And you can see the effect of this. The savings in the rate in America is very, very low. It's around 8% or something like that. That's not a very high savings rate. And so the interest rate should be reflecting this, but it's not because it's manipulated. If we had a low interest rate naturally because we had a lot of savings, then there would be no problem here. But the problem is we have not a lot of savings and a low interest rate. So you get people taking a lot of risks without the savings to back it up. And that's when you have lots of bankruptcies. Yeah, so the the forces at play in the savings and lending market are super critical for efficient allocation of resources. Kind of as Jeff was leading on to, if there's a lot of savers, that kind of sends a signal to the savers that, look, you're not going to really get much there's not a lot of opportunity for you to invest or you know the interest rate that you you can command is low so you got to do something with that money you got to go put it to Mm -hmm. work let's say you're stranded in the woods and it's cold and you spend every day chopping down trees for a fire to keep yourself warm among other things uh and let's say every day you burn all the wood that you chop to make a nice big fire and you're real toasty, nice and warm. Uh, you're going to spend every single day chopping that wood and that's and you're never going to get free from that, right? That's just that's that's the situation you're stuck in because you're burning literally all your savings, which is your wood creation. Now let's say you start putting aside some of that wood Every day, that's your savings. You can save up a, literally a pile of wood. That's savings, okay? Now, and you make the fire, you sacrifice a little bit. You're not going to get as big and warm of a fire. And you're going to be a little bit colder. It's not going to be as nice. And this whole time, let's say you were naked, okay? So you've put aside this wood for a while, okay? And now you feel pretty comfortable if you have a lot of wood, you're going to feel pretty comfortable not chopping any more wood, right? You're going to be feel comfortable with that stockpile that you've created. Okay. So now you're like, all right, I probably don't need to chop wood today. I can use that time on something else. And suddenly you see a sheep walk by and you're like, Hey, that motherfucker looks pretty warm. (laughs) So you get the idea to steal the wool off the sheep and you make yourself a sweater. Now, 
you have because you've saved up the firewood to free up your time to do other things, you've now created something that's going to pay dividends in a sense where mm. it's going to keep you warm indefinitely. That's investment. That's growth. That's how economies grow. Okay. You have to set aside savings so that you can take risks and do things with those savings, right? It may turn out that whatever you decided to do with those savings was a waste of time, but it may not. That's how you grow. And that's the point is the more savings there are, the, the more safe it is to, to take risks, right? Yeah, that's good. If you, if you went out on that venture after stockpiling wood and all you found was like lizards or something, (laughs) (laughs) you'd be like, well, back to chopping wood, you know, you got that signal to, to go chop wood. Right. Cause you're going to burn through a little bit of the savings if you find nothing. Right. But the fact that you find this, if you found the sweater, then you burn less wood every single day from there on. And then it's like, you're permanently better off. Right. So the, and that's exactly the same as in, in an economy. Like the good ideas that are found are only found through profitable ventures, mm-hmm. right? Once you, once you create a venture that's making a profit, that's a signal that that's a res, that's a efficient resource allocation mm-hmm. um, that is going to benefit the economy. And it's sustainable. Right. At least for when now. You, <laughs> when, you, when you mess with that market, then you start seeing things like malinvestment, which is if you went out into the woods to look for, to, to see what you could find, and some magical force just kept giving you wood, <laughs> right? You would just or keep let's looking. Just, let's like extend the analogy to two people, and you save up all that wood, and you give it, I say, let's say we're both chopping wood. And I do a little bit extra. I work a little harder, chop a little more wood and save some up. And then I lend it to you because you're a little more courageous than I and I don't want to venture out of our thing. And I say, hey, uh, hey, John, you know, you can you can go out and explore and, and, and figure something out. Right. Like like I'll lend it to you in the meantime. Right. I'm only going to do so if I feel like there's enough savings for this to last. But if someone lied to me about how much wood we actually had, then I'm going to let keep letting you do this. And then I'm going to look at my wood pile one day and realize I ran out a lot quicker than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what's happening is like, if you mess with the interest rates, it's essentially like lying about the supply of savings to people. It makes you think you have a much bigger pile of wood than you actually did. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's encouraging people to to venture out, which could be profitable, but it, there's no actual the signals are all messed up. It's not actually the profitable ventures that are mm-hmm. commanding more wood. It's actually the wood is artificially in a surplus. So mm-hmm. ventures that otherwise wouldn't have been funded into the woods are funded into the woods. Um, right. Not not depending on if they were profitable or not. All right, I like that. Right, because like you may keep showing up empty-handed, but if I think I have a ton of wood that I can fall back on, I may just keep. I'll be like, yeah, no big deal. But if if I one day realize, oh crap, actually half of this was rotten and no one told me, and I can't burn it anymore or it's wet or whatever, I don't know. (laughs) 
I don't know how it would, would go bad, but you know, then right. suddenly if I didn't realize that I, I've been reckless by just handing out wood to you like that when you just keep coming home empty handed. And so that's that people call this zombification of companies. Mm. And what that is, is basically like people feel more safe than they should in giving their money to these companies that keep showing up empty handed. They show up without a profit, but they feel safe in their, in the savings environment because the interest is manipulated. And so they keep dishing out money to these companies that don't make any money. Okay. I like this example and I'm going to come back to it after I readdress the Powell remarks that we were talking about. So All right. Powell was asked about savers, if they're being disproportionately punished, right? And he said, look at the amount of jobs that this low interest rate policy has created. That's the value, right? Oh, these savers, yeah, I mean, I do, he said, I do kind of feel bad for people that live off fixed income or li have to live off savings, you know, that's kind of, I, I forgot exactly what language he used, but he just kind of said, eh, it's, it's not a big deal, but it's a little unfortunate. It, so he kind of just basically treated it like a, as if it was like a throwaway um, mm -hmm. group of people. Like, it's just like, oh, don't really think about that. Think about all the jobs that we what were created. Think about all the demand that was stimulated that kept the economy strong, right? Mm -hmm. He said, that's the, the real value of this interest rate policy. So don't even really think about this group of throwaway people, which honestly is complete is a complete bastardation of how an economy works right so let's go back to the the firewood example right if there was two guys over there cooking the books and saying oh we got all this wood just keep going out there uh keep going out there keep looking for more wool or whatever you can find right they're yeah. able to venture and venture and venture and it, it, you've got another group of people separate mm. from these two that are just chopping wood and saving it up, not making mm -hmm. any ventures out into the woods. Well, if you were that guy that was saving and you looked over at these guys that keep venturing out in the woods and not finding anything, you would say, well, that's unsustainable. That's not really a good idea. It's, mm -hmm. it's proving not to be a good idea. Well, what if they get keep getting told, oh, just keep doing it by like some outside force. Yes, mm -hmm. keep, you know, your, your stock will keep being replenished or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's just like the saver's like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> I've been saving my wood. I've been doing the right thing. They've they've been doing stuff that's proving to be useless, and mm -hmm. I'm actually doing the right thing. I'm actually saving and you know preparing for a bad case scenario. They're actually getting the bad case scenario, and they're fine. They're well off, right? Mm -hmm. They just keep getting this what is quantitative easing stimulus, um, like money printing. They're mm -hmm. just the recipient of it, and I am over here working, being more realistic and. Uh, I'm I'm essentially getting punished, mm -hmm. which is yeah. kind of a good. You think that's a good application of that analogy, or would you? Yeah, well, I would say the problem is, um, like wood is a hard asset, right? Like in a theoretical society, wood could be used as money, in which case it's a hard asset, right? And so, if you're giving people wood, they know they can burn it. So, like the equivalent of creating money from nothing and giving it to people would be like giving them fake wood <laughs> that doesn't burn. Right. Right. So like that's, that's sort of like the equivalent, but like, yeah, I got you. I, I feel like the analogy breaks down a little bit there, 
But mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I agree. Like, so the savers are like savers are people who are not investing in these ideas that they think are bad ideas, right? So like, this is a controversial one, but uh, Tesla is a car company that I think we've talked about before on here, and they currently have a market cap that's bigger than Volkswagen, which is the biggest car company in the world. And so Volkswagen sold like 10 million cars or something like that. And Tesla sold like 10,000, right? So it's like, (laughs) just like a huge difference. And yet Tesla's valuation, their market cap is higher than Volkswagen's. And people go, oh, like you can't compare them because Tesla's nothing like it. Yeah, I, me personally, I'm like, that's kind of BS. You know, they're both car companies. At the end of the day, if people aren't buying Volkswagen because they're buying Tesla, that people aren't going to buy both a Volkswagen and a Tesla unless people suddenly get a whole lot richer or cars get a whole lot cheaper, right? So it's like, it's one or the other, right? So maybe Volkswagen goes to zero and Tesla stays where it's at. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe that happens. But like, they need to start making enough cars for that to be the case. And maybe they will one day. But the reality is, if their valuation is already as high or higher than Volkswagen, like where where is the upside? That stock has basically realized all of its upside unless just the car market itself grows significantly as well, which it might. But it's, it's basically suddenly realized all its upside. Like all the money that could have been put into Tesla is in Tesla. So it's like, you know, like um, people who... Now look at that as like, okay, that that's not a good investment opportunity. That's a saver, right? They're not investing in something that seems like a, an outlandish, uh, you know, opportunity. Outlandish yeah. speculation. But then what's my alternative? 1% interest? That's the thing is these things compete for returns. And so it's like, I'm like, well... I don't want to invest in that, but my alternative is crap, you know? So I get punished if I just want to sit, if I don't want to invest in these other things, right? So it's basically, you're basically forcing savers into a pickle. It's like you either don't take risks on the companies you don't believe in, or you get nothing for your your money. In fact, you may even get negative, right? Because if your savings are 1% interest, and inflation is higher than that, which I believe it is. Its official measure is like 1.7. So it's already higher than that. But I, I think it's probably higher than that because um, I don't necessarily agree with the measure. It's you're basically you're forcing people to deplete their savings. And so this is a central body basically giving the command sound to all the people in the population. Hey, you need to deplete your savings. And this is kind of like the core of Keynesianism, I guess, economics is like they believe that a central planner can step in when the market's too squeamish and then fix fix that market by basically tell it, like giving people less fear, right? That like it's it's sort of based in the psychology that there can be this mass hysteria that essentially is causing everyone more grief than they should. And the central planner can then wisely step in 
and fix that problem. But I, you know, they assume that this is fact, whereas to me, that's, you got to show me a little more proof that you, you're capable of doing such a feat, right? Yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly where I was going to go um, from there, is that remark definitely illustrates that he believes that, right? He believes right. that, oh, our policy stimulated demand to the point where we created all these jobs, like all these mm -hmm. jobs. That's what you have to be thankful for. And those jobs wouldn't have been there unless we created the demand for them. And it's like, like that demand is artificial. So right. to say that that's good or necessary, no one knows. Like he's playing like such a omnipotent role and saying, oh, this demand that was created is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, which in which case, if you think all demand is a good thing, then you might agree with him. But I, I think I think rational thinkers can look at that and disagree. And here's an example, right? If you have the latest iPhone, you had the latest MacBook, you had the latest <laughs> everything, everything. It's just like at some point you don't need it. Like it's like I, the Apple could Apple could come out with another product and right. It's like I you know I literally am stimulated in every oh and I, Apple TV. Okay, I have Apple TV. I'm stimulated in every aspect of what I could want. It's just like. Uh, I don't want anything more from Apple. It's just like, oh no, but here's more free money. Here's more, like, take some more money. Take so, and what I mean by that is when interest rates are low, it's essentially providing that liquidity to consumers, um, which is what he's accredit, which is which is what is he he's accrediting his policy is. He's saying once our policies have put more money in the pockets of consumers, so they are able to say. Oh, I don't know if I want to. Okay, I have extra money. I am gonna buy the Apple TV. I am gonna buy mm -hmm. the 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 next product. I'm gonna buy the next product. So you, it's it's stimulating that demand. And then look at that. We, we've created jobs for Apple. And it's like, what? Why is it up to uh, a single person, a single a single entity, the Federal Reserve, to determine what whether there should be more demand or not? If a company comes out with a good product. That should the demand should be there. It should exist in a healthy market. People should want mm. to transact willingly, right? If mm. you need to be pushing people into these transactions and then saying, "Look how many more jobs were created because we pushed people into these transactions. They bought so much more stuff." It's like, well, that's not that's not sustainable. At some point, people just like don't want anything more, right. unless you can keep convincing them. And at what at which point you can't convince them then the market crashes. Like there's an inevitable crash once people are just look around and say, I literally don't need anything else. So like what I would say is like back to, if you go back to the example of like chopping wood, right? So essentially, again, what the Fed has done is they've convinced people in general that there's more savings out there than there really are. Like that's not necessarily how people think of it, but that is the net effect, right? So you can draw an equivalent analogy. I think you could say is if you had a pile of firewood, but you didn't realize most of it has gone bad, <clears throat> right? So it's it, the analogy is you have a bunch of savings, you have less savings than you thought you had, and so you have this pile of firewood. So you have so you 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 perceive you have so much of it that someone comes up to you and says, "Hey, can I use some of that firewood to to do some whittling and make you some nice." duck sculptures and some so like a baseball bat 
and all sorts of cool knickknacks. And you're like, well, yeah, I got plenty of it. Why not? Right. And so you start giving them the firewood to make you some knickknacks and all the shavings go over and you're depleting all this wood on trivial nonsense. But hey, you've created a job, right? That guy is now has a job. His job is whittling, right? So like, and you're supplying him with the wood to make knickknacks and you just, he gives you a few of them, right? There's a job. But what happens when you suddenly realize you actually didn't have the savings you thought you had to be depleting all your savings on these stupid knickknacks? Now suddenly you're screwed, okay? You don't have the firewood you thought you had. You have to suddenly, that job is going to stop happening. You're not going to be giving that guy any more wood to make any more knickknacks. You're going to completely cease that, right? So that job is going to get terminated. That guy's going to get laid off. And what you're going to have to do is whatever you're doing in the meantime, when you thought you had plenty of firewood, you're going to have to stop doing that. So maybe it was productive. Maybe you were hunting and now you're going to have to go back to chopping wood again to keep yourself warm enough to not die. Right? So these things are unsustainable. When you, when you convince people when you like, cause with low interest debt and things of that sort, you can essentially fuel activity that in the long run is not going to, is not what your uh, economy needs. And so when that fuel runs out, you, you're going to have a collapse and that's the problem. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I just really want to, I just really want to hit home the fact that like this idea that like well congratulate us we did such a good job look how many jobs we created our economy mm-hmm. is going up and it's because we were able to stimulate this demand and mm-hmm. you know stimulating demand is like the most important thing because that's what what gooses the economic numbers mm-hmm. so so that credit you know oh a growing economy what does that mean well on the technical side that means that the gdp is growing right the gross domestic product mm-hmm which you might have learned about in economics class. If you if you haven't, it's just essentially the value, the price paid for all the final goods in an economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything that was consumed in an economy, the, the, the price that was paid for that. Another way to look at it is all of the salaries combined for all the people in an economy, right? So this is the measure that is used for indicating the growth of economies across the world. Why is this measure important, right? To ha- to say that the economy is growing, it's very important. Obviously, you hear a lot of people in the news, a lot of economists, a lot of government people talk about the GDP as a very important indicator of how our economy is doing. And why is this? Is it just because we want a higher GDP? Like, is that in itself um, a means? Well, not really. <laughs> that's like saying, that's like, asking someone if a good grade in high school is important to them. And they could say, oh, yeah, it's important to me. You know, oh, good grades. I need good grades. It's like, well, why do you need good grades? Well, I, I want to get into, good, uh, into a good college. It's like, well, that's the important thing. If you could get into a good college, yeah, you, you know, good grades are, are pretty much synonymous with getting into a good college, but it's not the good grades that you want. You want the college aspect, right? The good grades is just like, the proxy of like what you're able to do after high school. Um, Which is just like money. It's like everyone wants money, but you don't actually want money. 
Right. Like you don't care about the number of bits in your bank account or the <laughs> pieces of paper. Right. Money's a means to an end. You want that purchasing power. Right. Which right. I wasn't actually going specifically there, but that's a good, that's another good example. So yeah. I, where I was going with this was GDP, an increase in GDP is say, oh, we really want this increase in GDP. It's like, well, you don't really care about the GDP. What you actually want is the standard of living increase. Yeah. which that's the that's what GDP is used as a proxy for people and is it a good proxy I mean in most cases yeah if like if you had the option to live in an economy where it's a 19 trillion dollar GDP versus a one trillion dollar or I guess more importantly per capita so if it's mm-hmm. seventy thousand dollars per capita GDP country versus a five thousand dollar cap per capita GDP it's like you're almost certainly gonna have a better lifestyle in that $70,000 because there's, there's just more goods and products that are going around per person. So this, so GDP, everyone gets hung up on, but it's really just the proxy. And in some cases, so in some cases it's good. Like I just mentioned the per capita example, but it's not a, the be all end all of economic measuring, right? And it's not perfect in any way. It's not perfect. Right. So uh, in in, our, in an economy that's using GDP as the measure, right? A cancer patient, for example, mm-hmm. is a very good contributor to the GDP of the country, right? Because right. they're spending so much, like because of them, so much money is being spent on drugs, so much like money is being spent on hospital care, that the GDP is actually going up a lot. And they're it's creating like, jobs. Creating jobs, Oncology. all that. So cancer is great, right? Yeah. So, so this is an example where it's like, oh, like as a measure, like as GDP as a measure says that this economy is better, but if it's just riddled with cancer patients, like if everyone has cancer in this society, it's like, well, that's not a healthy society. That's like actually. It's quite literally not a healthy society. (laughs) Right. It's like not, that's not something you want, even though GDP is like very high. So that's just an example of why it's GDP has many shortcomings. That's like the major example of like just pure GDP increase does not mean standard of living increase. Mm-hmm. Well, the way Jerome Powell talks about job creation and GDP growth, it's as if he achieved his goal, which technically, I mean, I guess you could say he did. Yeah, it's achieve, technically his goal. Like his it goal is, is how he's measured. Right. His mandate by Congress, the Federal Reserve has a mandate from Congress to do that, right? So I guess mm-hmm. you can't blame central bankers for achieving their what they're said they're like right supposed to be doing i think job creation is even worse than gdp as far as i'm concerned this is my least favorite metric is how many jobs there are because like this is such an absurd thing to think about right is like okay a job digging ditches is not the same thing as a job doing neurosurgery or whatever like one is way more productive than the other right and so the number of jobs you have is not necessarily in any indication of like you could have a really low unemployment rate but if everyone's doing things that aren't highly productive you're not going to have a high standard of living right like that's just the case right like you can imagine a society of hunter gatherers their standard of living they could all be employed hunting and gathering. They're going to have a very low standard of living. But if you have a society full of people who can farm and 
transact automate their farming and, and do all that like even if you have a higher unemployment that society's gonna like even the people who are unemployed are better off in that society because food is going to be so cheap that like even if you don't have a steady income source probably begging would be a better lifestyle than hunting like it's it's just like because food right. is just much more abundant. Yeah, you're, so, just illust- you're illustrating like in a really high uh, standard of living society, even the scraps are better than right. Like because it's just so much more productive. Yes, and and so and there's just there's and that's clear, right? Like the amount of food you're producing is higher per capita, so there's just more to go around, and so this focus on unemployment is. Like this really, like I, it's so laser focused on unemployment. It's like one of the main goals of the Fed. And if you have people employed, but you're, you're basically goosing people to employ them, right? With these low interest rates where you're basically enabling companies that don't make profits into employing people, you're actually just hollowing out your economy. And eventually that standard of living is going to fall because of it. If you, or here's a great example. Here's an easy way you can create a ton of jobs. Why even go through all these extra steps, right? Just have the government directly pay people to dig holes in the ground. There's a job, right? Just paying a bunch of people to dig holes in the ground. Well, where is the government going to get that money? They have to take it from somewhere. They have to tax other people. So people who are producing things and are profitable, they're going to have to give their money to people who are literally taking that money and just digging holes with it. So (laughs) the supply of goods is going to fall because of it. Like those people might as well be doing nothing if they're just digging holes in the ground, right? Like, yeah, that's a job, but they might as well be doing nothing. Like the standard of living is not going to rise until everyone's productivity is going up. That's what matters. Yeah. So I was really, yeah. So we're really just trying to nail home why this thinking, this line of thinking from Jerome Powell is just so misguided, right? He's pointing to, oh, like, our savers affected poorly? It's like, well, yeah, but don't look at, don't think about that. That's not the important <laughs> part. The important part is the jobs that were created and the growth in the economy. It's just like, we're what we're just describing is like, that is not the be-all, end-all. And in mm-hmm. fact, the saving in the economy, as we kind of mentioned in the former half of this podcast, is so crucial for resource allocation and an actually efficient economy that's allocating resources the best they they possibly can be used long you know short term and long term. Do you have anything else you want to say specifically? I have one more thing I want to. Yeah, one more thing on this. Get to. Like, even if it was like job creation was in fact a net positive and the savers were suffering because of it, why does he get to pick that? Like, why does he get to pick who wins and who loses, right? So, like, in absence of the Fed, the market would determine interest rates, right? No individual would. And so whoever wins and loses in a marketplace isn't up to anybody. It's just the way it goes, right? And so, like, why should one man have the power? It's not really one man, but why should this small group of people be able to pick winners and losers like this. Like what, like 
I guess Congress gave him that right, but like, I don't know. I don't think <laughs> they just right. This is uh, we should just assume that they should be able to do this. Yeah, to say that Jerome Powell is a good central banker or Bernanke or Greenspan, to say they do their jobs well is to say that someone else in the position could do the job poorly, right? <laughs> and if someone in that job is right. doing it poorly, that's devastating. Like having a mm-hmm. having an economic calamity right is like the great depression it's like you mm-hmm. know people's lives are destroyed people's people yeah. are forced to into into poverty right that's like why would you mess around with that and just to qualify ourselves we're not saying he's bad because he's focusing on easy money as opposed to saving right if there was a central banker that was i mean this person doesn't exist but say there was a central banker who stressed saving over easy money mm-hmm. and he said everybody needs to save up before they make any purchases well it's like well that's equally you know that could be an equally right. bad society then that economy's not going to grow yeah growth would be halted the economy would basically be halted there wouldn't be any jobs in that scenario either it's just when someone plays that part plays the omnipotent role of setting the winners like jeff said winners versus losers the winners are the are the spenders and the losers are the savers. In another scenario where the savers are the winners and the spenders are the losers, in both scenarios, you're not going to get optimal outcomes right. from the market. You need resources to be efficiently allocated in a, a method only the free market can dictate. Right. And it, the, I think the key thing, I think I do point this out a lot, but I feel like it always needs to be said is, Neither John nor I think I we could do Jerome Powell's job better than he can. We're saying this is an impossible job with mm-hmm. a meaningless task. Like we've tasked him to do something that does not, in our opinion, create any value <laughs> and gave him goals yeah. that are completely arbitrary as far as we're concerned. Right. So we're saying this job should not exist. It, it, like if... Congress gave us this job of making the economy healthy. I don't, I can't make the economy healthy. It's going to, it's dependent on every individual summing up all their individual actions together Mm -hmm. to make a healthy economy. Like there's no one person who can step in and fix the lives of millions. It's just, it doesn't work that way. Like Mm -hmm. economies are the sums of millions of different individuals acting in their own best interest. And for anyone to step in and, and alter it is to say those all the sum of all these people's intelligence with all the information they share between them about their own circumstances, about what they need to do, you're saying all of that is wrong and I know better than all of that. Right. Which is an absurd position to take. Like the amount of information you'd have to know, the amount of intelligence you'd have to have, even is probably even beyond that of like a super computer. Like it's probably yeah. just impossible. Right. And while we're at it, I mean, the office of the president itself is probably similar. Like, how can Mm -hmm. you be forced to, well, not forced, how can you expect yourself to legislate in a way that's going to make everybody (laughs) happier and better off? Like, it's like, we live in such a large country with so many different people. How can you, how can one person with one sweeping rule be able to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be able to articulate policy for each and every individual in that society. Right. I don't think like, that's possible either. Like I, I think you can think about the absurdity of it is like like everyone wants a house, right? 
So what does that take? It takes resources and it takes manpower, right? To the idea that someone could just jump in and just say, I decree everyone gets a house and then that's going to get everyone a house is just absurd on its mm -hmm. face. Like it's just no words on a piece of paper are going to build houses for people. It takes resources and labor, which is in itself a resource. And so like it takes hard work and time and a large number of people to do it. You can't just legislate your way to a better life. It's, it takes our collective effort to get there. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on is this sentiment, right? The naysayer kind of attitude that Jeff and I are kind of espousing is kind of cheap in a lot of people's opinion. Some people think that, oh, anyone can call bullshit on a, a system as complex as, as ours because then when it goes wrong, when something does go wrong, you know, people like, you know, me and Jeff are going to say, oh, look, we were right. And it's like, well, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. So people mm -hmm. will discount the commentary that we're providing now to when there's an actual downturn or an actual, some, you know, the consequences of this bad policy are actually come into fruition. People are like, well, it doesn't count because you were just calling that. That was just your statement for, I guess we've been doing this for a couple months now, but there's other people that we kind of subscribe to and agree with like Peter Schiff, for example, he's been saying this stuff for, you know, 15 years probably. Mm -hmm. So if something bad, as bad as he is predicting does happen, you know, I can already hear the people say now it's like, well, Peter Schiff, you've been saying that for 15 years. It doesn't matter what you said, because when you say the same thing for 15 years and it, and something bad happens, well, you were just, you know, you were, you weren't actually targeting any specific policy. You were, um, you were just playing the naysayer. And so whenever it, whenever it came to be that fact, then you would just take credit for it. Yeah. We're just perma bears, not to be confused <laughs> with pol polar bears. Those are different. <laughs> so what I wanted to address with this is I wanted to, I came up with an analogy that I think is kind of fitting for people that talk this way. And if it's, and people, so people think of it like, oh, if, if, if it's like, someone's training for a marathon, right? And someone else is just sitting on the couch all day. And the person training for the marathon comes in the house and the person sitting on the couch starts telling them, you're doing it wrong. Like you're, 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 you know, you're, uh, you're not running right. You're not using the right training. You're not eating the right things. You're not doing this, doing that. Well, the marathon runner could say, what, who are you to tell me what I'm actually doing something, right? I'm actually out there trying to win a marathon. And you're just sitting on the couch. So I don't really have to listen to you. And they don't. I, I don't think they should. I think that someone who's actually doing something should never have to listen to the, the naysayer in that scenario. The guy just sitting on the couch, right? Well, here's a, here's a spin on it. <clears throat> what if these are a married couple and the guy that sits on the couch has all the money and the girl that's running the marathon is out there and she's purchasing new shoes and she's purchasing new clothes and she's purchasing hundred dollar per gram protein powder and she's purchasing all this stuff and she comes in and the guy on the couch says hey you're trying for a marathon but you're spending too much money <laughs> right and that person says 
look at me. I'm training for a marathon. You're just sitting on the couch, right? Well, that person on the couch has very much reason to say, <laughs> yeah, but it's my money. Like, <laughs> you can't just spend it and just credit yourself to trying that mm-hmm. you can do anything, you can do no wrong, right? Mm-hmm. That person on the couch now does have skin in the game and they mm-hmm. do have the ability to offer an opinion on what so you don't need to buy all this stuff to train for a marathon like you should just train for the marathon if that response is oh no you you can't tell me what to do you're just sitting on the couch all day it's just like well (laughs) i'm invested in this and i disagree with the way you're going about it (laughs) you're spending all my money (laughs) so that was just an analogy i thought so someone like peter schiff people wouldn't say oh he's not doing anything he's just calling it well He's afraid for his stake in, like this this country, this you know right. this society. He, here's an as example. A, as that are we? Maybe resonates with some people is climate change. There's a bunch of people warning about it. I don't see any problems right now. Does that mean there never will be? That's it's the same absurdity, right? It's like just because these problems take time to realize doesn't mean they're never gonna exist. And so it's like, you know, I. This is not to say, you know, not to get into the policy to do, deal with climate change or whatever. It's just the concept, right? Like, just because something is not currently bad doesn't mean you don't understand the driving forces that mm-hmm. are going to cause the problems ahead. So, like, again, a guy like Peter Schiff, who I think does understand very well the driving forces that caused the financial crisis in 2008 is again saying we haven't learned anything from this and we're headed for another financial crisis that's even worse because we've learned nothing and we're actually doing problems that are we're exacerbating the problems and so people say oh man it's been 15 years what the heck do you know it's like in the grand scheme of things it's not a long time maybe these forces take a while to build up you know it's like to just call people perma bears because they're consistently saying there is a problem and it's getting worse is so dismissive. It's like calling people, uh, you know, if it in Australia, right? Let's say that for that first forest fire, someone was like, Hey, this, uh, this fire is kind of spreading, you know, maybe, maybe we should put it out. And they're like, ah, we're fine. It's no, it's nowhere near the rest of the thing. Like you could point out and say, Hey, maybe we should have listened to that guy. Maybe we should have put the fire out early rather than later, right? So it's like to just completely dismiss people because everything right now is fine. And all the years they've said this is a problem and it still hasn't been a problem, yet you still haven't dealt with the consequences, is a completely illogical way of looking at the world. And so I, I think these people that are so dismissive because things are good right now, by their definition, are just uh, that's a te- I, I don't agree with that argument at all. Uh, P.S. Stocks stocks only go up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that was an hour, so I think uh, that about does it. Yeah. So uh, we'll see you next time. When on the next episode of FOMC comes out. (laughs) No, we'll probably see you before that. I thought we were going to record another episode after we finished this one.
True. We're we gotta we're gonna have to record one for when the Fed cuts rates because the coronavirus won't stop spreading. Yeah. You see so the key to cu- you see the key to curing that is just printing money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Stimulate demand. <laughs> <laughs> it solves all problems. All right. See you later. <laughs> Thanks for doing less. <laughs>